0: Well, praise the Lord for his goodness. You really can never stop talking enough about the goodness of the Lord, can you? You never stop saying how great and how wonderful he is and how much he blesses and provides every step of the way. And I hope this morning you know that from your own experience. I hope that's abundantly clear to you in every way in your life. And if you don't know him this morning, I pray this is the morning where you discover his greatness and his goodness to you. Thank you. God is faithful, and God has been so good to us. And we need to praise him over and over again, not just the first Sunday, right? We need to keep praising him and keep glorifying him for what he's done, not just in providing a building for us, but in the redemption that he's brought to our lives for the change that he has brought by saving us. Let's take our Bibles. Let's turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6. When I was Seeking the Lord about our study this morning, I was really hoping for something um, that was very applicable to our situation, something about when the tabernacle first got to its final place or some picture of how the Lord, uh, people praise the Lord for his goodness and, and his um, faithfulness to them. And he kept leading me back to this text. And I had a little bargain with the Lord, little conversation with him. I tried to find something else. And I kept saying, well, Lord, I want to look at that passage where they brought the tabernacle in and they, and they kind of established it and he kept bringing me back to this. And the more I studied, kind of concerned at first that this might be in some ways heavy or negative, the Spirit really taught me and he showed me that this is a very, actually a very positive passage because it calls us to uh, purity individually. It calls us to purity as a congregation, and it shows us how to protect ourselves against the enemy's attack. Now, Over the last month, I think we've really seen that increase. We've really seen uh, a heavy dose of attack in a lot of different ways, and we will continue to see that attack. I wish I could say we won't, but if we do the work of the Lord, we know the enemy will respond. So if we're going to be a church that Stands for the Lord. We're going to preach His Word and we're going to worship Him as we did and we're going to sacrifice and serve as so many of you have over the last month. And if we're going to call on the Lord with fervency and with confidence and with belief that He works when we call, and we're really going to gain a heart for this city and for this area, and we're really going to reach out to people and minister to them and share the gospel with them and help them grow in their faith. If we're going to do all that, work, if that's going to be the labor of this church, then the enemy will go after us. And that doesn't need to intimidate us. It should sober us. It should humble us. But it shouldn't intimidate us because the Lord is far greater than him. The Lord's already won the victory over him for all eternity. So while we need to be sober and wary and on guard, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to be scared. But the enemy will go after us. And he will be aggressive about it. And he'll try to divide us. And he'll try to dissuade us. And he'll try to discourage us. And distract us. And cause doubt about God's provision. But we just sang about the Lord's provision, right? That whole set of songs, the two songs that the choir did, they all talk about the goodness and provision of the Lord. And we've seen it. We're sitting in a place this morning that shows God's faithfulness, that shows God's provision and God's leading. Because two months ago, we didn't even know. That's how God works. So let's start this morning with this study, because this really doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Proverbs chapter 6. But let's start by just remembering God's faithfulness and provision over the last two and a half years. There's absolutely no question that he has helped us and that he's led us every single step of the way. He's never failed to be faithful, and he never will. He's been good to us when we didn't deserve it. He's led us when we didn't know what we were doing. He's forgiven us when we've sinned and rebelled against him. He's answered when we called. He's drawn near when we've drawn near to him. He has provided all that we've needed, and when we didn't know what to do next, he gave us wisdom. Every single step of the way, The Lord has been with us. He's always given and he's never held back. Do You know that truth in your life? Do you realize that every morning I have to remind myself of that. God has never failed to give. He has never held back. He's never said, I've given enough to you. What more do you want? You've got redemption. That should be it. But God says, I will keep giving to you and I'll keep leading you and I'll keep providing for you. And every single one of us in this room has experienced God's love and God's hand of blessing over the last two and a half years in our own lives and in our congregation. And we have to be careful never to take that for granted. Now that we've settled, so to speak, now that the tabernacle is in place for a while, that doesn't mean we just say, okay, we're done. Boy, that was a journey, wasn't it? In fact, God's given us greater responsibility now that we have settled in a place now he says, this is your ministry. This is where I want you to serve. This is where I want you to proclaim my name. Downtown Racine first. As we go out farther, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. God is going to continue to move and he's going to be faithful to us. And now he's giving us a work of ministry that he's showing us that he wants us to go forward and do. And I thought as I as I was studying that about the words of Solomon, when he dedicated the temple And he stood before the people and he says, make sure, make sure that your heart stays devoted to the Lord. Make sure that you walk in his statutes and his commandments. Make sure you remember what God's done in leading us here. And as I was moving furniture yesterday and we were finishing preparations in the building, the Lord drew my mind back to those first nights in the upper room before the church even started and the excitement and the stirring that we felt as a church of what God was going to do and how we prayed to him and how we asked him to confirm what was going on and, and that he would lead us and that he would bless us. And, and I've said it before many times, I'll say it again, I'll never forget the image of somebody you standing in the hallway with your soccer chairs just just waiting, just ready to go, just saying, Lord, what do you want from us now? And then the atmosphere of the room and those anointed prayers that were prayed calling on the Lord and asking him for help. I've been in church all my life, almost 49 years. I don't think I've ever experienced something that unique. And God was so pleased. Don't you think that his people were calling on him and showing love for each other? But here's the battle that we face. The Lord doesn't want us to just sustain that. He wants it to grow to new levels. He wants now to take what's happened in the first two years and he wants to move it to a new place. Here's the reason. If we will love the Lord more and we will love each other more, that will lead us to love the world more. And if we love the world more, we will want to reach people for Christ. If we love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and then we love each other the way we love ourselves, and I love me a lot, But if I love you the same way I love me, following the way I love the Lord, then my heart will start to be broken for all the people that I pass in my car, all the people that are walking by this building, all the people that you see at the mall or at work or at restaurants or wherever you go. Our hearts will start to be broken for them and we will say, how can we reach them for Christ? But it starts with loving the Lord and loving each other. And when that happens, that will give us a fire for ministry that we have not experienced over the first 30 months. A passion for the gospel and a passion for the unsaved and a hunger for the Spirit of God to move in our midst. And the opposite side of that will be the pushback from the enemy, which he will gladly take on. Spirit of God this morning is giving us a passage, and it's a hard passage, but this passage will help us to fight the attack that the enemy is going to launch and has been launching against us. It will always start from within. We we tend to think that the battle for the gospel happens outside these walls, that the unsaved are are, are attacking us and want to diminish our ministry. But the attack will always start within. We've seen evidence of it over the last couple of weeks. I I don't know how many times in the last couple of weeks I've heard somebody say, well, there are, there are little rumblings going on little frustrations, little irritations with each other, and little little, little rubs that we have against each other. And they're being discussed not with the person that's irritating, they're being discussed with somebody else. And then it spreads. So let me say at the outset this morning, the principle that we have established as a church since day one, we say it in membership class, we've said it many times from this pulpit, and I want to reinforce it again because this is the foundation for what we're going to study in Proverbs chapter 6. If you have a problem with any believer in this congregation, you are to go directly to them and talk to them about it. If you and I have a problem, if I have a problem with you, my job is not to go tell somebody else. My job is to come talk to you about it. And if somebody talks to you about a problem with another believer and tries to get your ear or get you involved, you're not to listen to it, whether you agree or disagree. You're to tell them, go to that person, and if you're hesitant, I will go with you, and I will mediate, and we'll pray about it, and we'll find a solution. And if you hear somebody doing this, you're to stop them and follow the same pattern. Why? Because that's Harbor Rock Tabernacle rules? No, that's the Bible's rules. That's what the Bible says to do, and it's the only way to do it. And what's encouraged me is even as I've heard about these rumblings in the past few days, I've seen two examples firsthand of people that have sought direct resolution and it has brought understanding and reconciliation and peace because the Bible always works. Now you say, all right, Rhodes, why do you make a big deal about this this morning? Why on our opening Sunday are you preaching about this? Why not talk about something more positive? Well, the simple answer is there are certain things that greatly displease and grieve the Lord. And those things can kill the body. Earlier in the week, the Lord gave me the title, The Assassins, for this message. And even though I resisted it, he kept bringing me back to it because that's exactly what these actions can do in our midst if we allow them. Now, God hates all sin. God loves every sinner, but he hates all sin. But the ones that we're going to look at this morning are especially damaging because we do them to each other which makes it very important that we understand them and heavily guard against them as a body. So I believe with all my heart that God is not yelling us this morning. He is being very gracious to us because he's warning us and he's encouraging us as a body. Do not let these exist in your own heart or in the congregation. So let's look at them. As loving as God is, and we know he is, love is defined by God. You can't define love without God. As loving as he is, he tells us there are certain things that he despises. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. My son, verse 20, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. And when you awake, they'll talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are a way of life. Now, go back to verse 16 because there are two incredibly strong words that the Holy Spirit uses here to describe the Lord's attitude and posture toward these seven things. The Spirit writes there are six things that the Lord hates. Actually, there are seven things that are an abomination to him. Now let's define those two words. The first word is hate. Not a word we usually associate with the Lord, but the word in the Hebrew means to intensely detest. To 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 despise them with great feeling and with great further. And then the second word, abomination, means disgusting. So let's read it again with more demonstrative explanations of what it means. He's saying there are seven things that the Lord intensely detests, which are disgusting to him. Now that's shocking language for the God who looked at our sin and said not I'm going to condemn everybody to hell because they sinned against me and I can't abide it in my holiness. This is the God who sent his son to die for us, to take my sin and your sin upon himself, to be whipped by his creation, to be crucified like a common thief and to die. And then to rise again and deliver us and say, if you will believe on my name and you will confess your sins I will utterly remove your sin, I'll redeem you, I'll buy you, and you'll be mine forever. It's the same God that's saying that. So we can't say, well here, this is proof, God God is full of anger and hate, I knew it. No, God is full of love, but there are certain actions that are disgusting to him. And that should tell us that these seven things are very, very serious. The context of the passage, if you go back to the start of the chapter, is that Solomon is giving wise counsel to his son. Solomon only had one son, according to scripture, that was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was not somebody that learned these lessons very well. He was the first king of Judah after the nation split, and Rehoboam was not a man who walked after the Lord. So we don't know if this is a broad metaphor, my son speaking to the whole nation, or whether he's actually speaking to Rehoboam. The point is, he's giving instruction. And it starts in chapter 6 with him warning against laziness and and spiritual perversion, uh, which he says are the hallmarks of somebody who's wicked. Somebody who devises evil, verse 14 says, and spreads strife. Now, we would hope and, and, and trust that that doesn't describe any of us who is believers. I hope it's never said of Paul Rhodes, somebody who devises evil and spreads strife. Because those actions are not true of somebody who loves the Lord and is convicted about Jesus Christ. And yet, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for our teaching, correction, and training of righteousness. So these must be words that we need to hear. Which means that when we look at verses 16 to 18, we have to examine our hearts And our actions to say, do these things, do these seven things that are disgusting and detestable to the Lord, do they exist anywhere in my life? And you say, well, Paul, this is talking about somebody who who's opposed the Lord and hates the Lord. Yes. But every time we sin, what are we saying? We're saying, I don't love you. I don't love you, Lord. I want to do my thing. I want to do what I want. I want it my way. We don't talk about sin in those terms often, but that's exactly what sin is. Sin is saying, I don't love you, Lord. I love me. I love me more than I love you. So if that's what sin is, if that's how we define it in in kind of everyday terms, well, then when we look at these things, I don't know about you, but I still sin. And I may be forgiven and you may be forgiven and exonerated forever, but until I get to heaven and until you get to heaven, we still have sin. So while this passage is primarily written to people who are evil in their hearts, it's not to say that you and I can't have times where we hold the exact same attitudes or do the exact same actions that are in here. And we know the devil can read. So when he looks at this and he says, God has given me a list of the seven things that he despises. God's given me a list of the seven things that he is disgusted by. Well, let's see. I'm the enemy of those people. Guess what I'm going to go after? Guess what I'm going to promote? Guess what I'm going to try to aggravate in their hearts? And he knows the effect it'll have. It's like a sniper that strikes without warning and does maximum damage. So let's examine them. Just a few minutes each. Let's find out what these are and how we can avoid them. Look at the first thing. The first thing the Lord despises is haughty eyes. Not a word we use a lot. Literally, it means to exalt yourself. The first thing the Lord despises is to exalt yourself. And the text says it's expressed in a proud look. In other words, it has two parts, to be self-absorbed and to look down on others. Now, isn't it interesting that in the list of the seven things that God says, I hate these things, I want these nowhere in your life because they disgust me. Isn't it interesting that the first thing that God lists is pride? It's the foundation of every sin, and it's the catalyst for every sin, so it's not hard to understand why it disgusts the Lord so much. I once heard a pastor describe pride as having the scent of hell, and that's true. Pride is what caused the enemy to fall, Pride is what led Adam and Eve to fall. Pride is what has caused every single sin. Pride is what causes conflict among relationships. Pride is what causes us to rebel against the Lord. It has the scent of hell. And it's such a contrast to the humility and the sacrifice of Christ. Because pride is saying, I want to exalt me instead of exalting Christ. Is it any wonder why the Lord hates it? Is it any wonder why the Lord says, I'm going to oppose it. See, pride is so subtle and it's so insidious that a lot of times we don't even realize we're giving in to it. But here's the bottom line with pride. Pride is overvaluing ourselves and undervaluing others, which is a complete contrast to what we're called to do in being loving and humble, and it's why the Lord doesn't like it. So listen, let me tell you. Over the next weeks and months, the devil is going to try to stoke our hearts with pride. Individually and as a church, he's going to go after this, he's going to push it, it's going to take on many forms, and we have to be aware of it, and we need to guard against it when it even begins to raise its ugly head. Second, the Lord despises a lying tongue. Why? Because God's a God of truth. God is truth. So when we lie, it's a distortion or a denial of the truth. This takes on a lot of forms too. Deception, fraud, dishonesty. All these things are second on the list. And God says they're an abomination to me. They they are disgusting to me because nothing is more sacred to the Lord than truth. Jesus himself said, I am truth. Not I have truth or I'm going to preach truth or I stand for truth, he defined himself as truth. So when we don't live by the truth, guess what? We completely devastate our relationship with the Lord because he is truth. And notice where lying rests. Look back at the text. It doesn't rest with deceptive actions. He's not saying, don't deceive each other. Don't do things that are kind of tricking each other. He says, here's where lying rests. It rests on the tongue. James calls the tongue, listen to this description, a fire, the very world of iniquity and what defiles our whole body. Not a lot of latitude in that description, is there? It's a fire. It's a world of sin. We've all experienced it and we've all done it. You ever been burned by somebody's words? You ever been Devastated and hurt and damaged because somebody said something to you or about you. You ever been lied about? You ever had somebody make make a statement about you that was just flat out not true, and you're trying to defend yourself, and nobody's listening? To you? It doesn't even have to be a direct falsehood. It can be something as simple as a suggestion. Oh, I heard that. Or an inference, kind of subtle suggestion that, oh, maybe they did that. Or, or a simple attack on character or on motives that has no truth to it. It's, it's gossip, it's accusation, it's slander, it's implying attention. It all falls under the second category, and it is all destructive. The tongue is slick. The tongue is able to twist things and spin it however we want, so we look good and the other person looks bad. And I want to tell you this morning, and I'm going to say it to myself, don't do it. Don't fall into it. Don't allow yourself to fall into this trap that the devil wants to do in first stoking our pride and then getting us to say things that we shouldn't say. Third, would you see that the third thing that disgusts the Lord is hands that shed innocent blood. Now, obviously, we have to read that literally. And I would suspect that none of us has been guilty of this one or we would probably be in jail this morning. We've seen in Revelation that Antichrist, when he comes, that he will take all three of these first values, that that he will be the liar and the deceiver. He'll call himself God. And John says that he will be drunk with the blood of the saints. Now, we've read that literally because we've read all of Revelation literally. But I have to wonder there whether this third action that Solomon's describing here in Proverbs 6 has a little bit of a sense of metaphor that maybe shedding innocent blood also refers to injustice and relational assault and attack within our relationships that does incredible harm on the person being attacked. I don't know if you've ever experienced this in marriage or with your kids or at work or with church or family or whatever the case may be, where there was a relentless attack where where you felt under the gun and, and either you were the one that did it or you were the one that received it and you felt wounded and just uh, affected by the, by the force of the attack. Now, when we put it with the first two, look back at those, uh, exalting yourself and a lying tongue, then we have to say, how many times have I lashed out at someone out of pride or said something false about them or tried to do some damage to them because either they hurt me, or I just felt like it. I'm just going to go after it, or I'm going to exalt myself, so I'm just going to say something that will hurt, and it will do a little damage, and you know what? I can live with that. Boy, that's a bad place to be, isn't it? I can live with it. I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it anyway. Look at the fourth thought. It says, the Lord despises a heart that devises wicked plans. Literally, it means to create trouble. That leaves a lot of room for interpretation, doesn't it? A heart that wants to create trouble. Has that been any of us over the last month, two months, six months? Because the intent behind this one is key. This is a purposeful effort to create conflict and division. And again, this one goes all with the other three sometimes choosing words that will that will pit people against each other sometimes saying something that will imply there was some some guilt there there was some sin there was some uh, rub there implying doubt about a person's character or a person's motives again this can be very subtle in the way we execute it but the damage is very overt and it's not accidental because the word that's used here look at the text a heart that devises wicked plans the word there means to plot and to plan in your heart. Whether it's out of coveting, whether it's out of jealousy, whether it's out of the desire for attention, whether it's out of revenge, whether it's just being mean. This is where our heart plans ahead. How am I going to do this so I get the maximum effect to damage that other person and to exalt myself? And then fifth, I know this is all happy, right? Right? fifth, look at it, are feet that run rapidly to evil. The implication here is that someone sees how they can leverage trouble and then they quickly embrace the plan. The word rapidly implies the person's impatient. I'm not going to think through this. I'm certainly not going to pray about it. Because if I pray about it, I know what the Lord's going to tell me to do. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to act in the moment, and then I'll justify it on the backside. You ever done that? Don't raise your hands. Yes, you have. I, I think I'll, I'll hit a little bit. I'll attack a little bit. I'll say a little bit. I'll jump into the situation a little bit, and then I'll bob out. And, and, I'll, and I'll know what I'm doing, and I know the Lord's probably not pleased with it, but does he know how much I've been hurt? Does he know what I'm feeling? Does he know how I need to be seen or I need attention? So so I'm just going to go in and do a little damage and step out and God will forgive me. He will forgive you, but he's going to be disgusted. Because he says, I hate this. I hate it when we, he's saying to us, I hate it when you run rapidly to sin. When you go after it. And this doesn't mean some nasty sin. This doesn't mean some deep perversion. It could, but that's not the context. The context is relational. When you go to sin, and when I go to sin, and we run to it, and then we step out. We just hit and come out. And God says, that disgusts me. I hate that. Now, the last two are somewhat of a combination of the first five. He says, a false witness who utters lies, that's a mix of number one and number two. And then he says, one who spreads strife among brothers, that's numbers three, four, and five. But but just because they're a summation, don't glide past them, especially number seven, because they show the assassination potential of our attitudes and our actions. Now Solomon knew all about the dysfunction of family. David was a great king. He wasn't the best father in the world. And Solomon knew the dysfunction of his family from the relationship that David had with Bathsheba to the whole mess with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom and the rebellion of his half brother and trying to take the kingdom by force. Solomon knew all about it. So he knew the damaging power of words and attitudes and disunity. And that's why when we look at that word there that's so important here at the end of verse 19 is that word brothers that family reference is significant for us. Because when we see that word brothers, it's not hard to apply this thought to the church family. And listen, Christ died for us. And he said, as my children, you are my body. We are the body of Christ. That's not just some nice concept. We gather and we're this... Family, it's an overused word with church. We're like a family and we're just a body. No, Christ says, you are my body. Now, as my body, he says, I want you to be like-minded. Be of one mind. Be of the same mind in Christ. As you're following me, as you're submitting to me, as you're yielding to my spirit, you will have the same way of thinking doesn't mean we're all going to agree on everything. Some of you are going to like the Bears. Some of you are going to like the Packers. Some of you are going to like red. Some of you like green. Some of you like the color of these chairs. Some of you don't. They're temporary. There are things we disagree about. That doesn't mean we can't be like-minded because we're like-minded in Christ. But when we have conflict, when we have pride, when there are lies and deception, we're wounding the mind of Christ. I know that's a very surreal concept, but think about it. As his body, we're supposed to have the same brain. It's his brain. And if we don't go by his brain, then we're going by our brain, and there's division. And then he says to us, don't cut and bruise my body. You've already done that once. And yet, when you're divided, when you're attacking when you're wounding, when you're hurting each other, what you're doing is you are cutting my body. You're wounding me. Now we say, well, Paul, it's just a conflict with another person. No, it's then a conflict with the Lord because we're hurting his body. So now all of a sudden it gets a lot more serious because he says, you're members of my body. Some of you are a hand, some of you are a foot. You're a shoulder. Some of you are a knee. Every part has a function. Every part has a gift. Every part is essential. Don't mess with my body. That's hard words this morning. But listen, this is what the Spirit is telling us to do. And what does God tell us in reverse? Because we've dealt with the negative. So what does he tell us in reverse? He says, strengthen my body. Build up my body. How? How? by maturing, by being strong in the Lord, and then by protecting the body against attack, especially internal attack. Listen, I have no question the Lord has led us to this place. I have no question that the Lord is putting us in the next phase of ministry, and it can be undone very quickly by allowing these seven things to exist. Or we can offset it as a church And see God continue to abundantly bless us far beyond what we can ask or think. So how do we do it quickly? Look at the last part of the text, verses 16 to 19. These aren't as well known as the first verses. No, I'm sorry, verses 20 to 23. But There's just as much truth to apply here. There are three instructions in verses 20 to 21. Three instructions that tell us what to do with this teaching from the Spirit. Essentially, these are the ways that we shield ourselves against these seven killer attitudes and actions. We're instructed to, instructed to observe them, to not forsake them, and to bind them continually on our heart. Start with the last word first. Don't miss the word heart because this is a heart issue. This is not a relational issue this is not, well, you don't know what's going on. This is an issue internally. It starts with the heart. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he does. So the heart now is what pours out. The heart is what reveals who we are, and it's revealed in our actions. If we're right with the Lord, these things will be a given. If we're wrong with the Lord, the seven things will come out. So what do we do? First, we start with observing the commandments of the word. The word there means to watch over and guard. In other words, offense and defense, like the servants who stood on the walls in Nehemiah's time when they were being criticized and attacked, he said, have a tool in one hand and a sword in the other. In other words, be on offense and be on defense. And that's what the Lord's telling us to do. He's saying, my word is your guard it guards you against the temptation and the danger of sin and it helps you fight when it tempts you to act. So obey it. Second, he says, make sure you don't forsake it. Make sure you don't forsake the teaching of the word. Make sure you don't forsake the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Forsake means to allow it to slip and to abandon it. In other words, it's it's carelessness and it's callousness. And I think it's interesting, at the end of the verse, look at it. It refers to a mother. It says, don't forsake the teaching of your mother. That image is important because it implies that we need the comfort and strength and security of the word, and we need to trust it to provide for us. In other words, snuggle in. I know that's a weird thought. Go with me on it, okay? Snuggle into the word. Find strength in it. Find security in it. Find comfort in it because this teaching will help you not forsake me. And then third, one more step, bind the truth continually on your heart and around your neck. Sear the word into your spirit. The Bible says, thy word have I hidden in my, tell me the next word, heart, that I might not do what? Sin against you. Get the word implanted. Get it into your heart and your mind. Memorize scripture. Pull it in so it will be there so you'll have it as a bound truth continually in your heart and around your neck. That second word is like a daily attachment. It's like putting on a tie for work. I'm going to get ready today and I'm going to use the word of God and I'm going to bind it around my neck. I'm going to make an intentional choice today to show my desire to walk with the Lord. Now what's the effect of this? We're done. Look at verses 22 and 23. The net effect of doing this is that simply by actively pursuing what's pleasing to the Lord. Listen now, it's very basic. By actively pursuing what's pleasing to the Lord instead of what disgusts him. Those are the two choices. We serve the Lord, we please the Lord, we live for the Lord, or we allow what disgusts him. He says that that decision, if we choose to please him, will guide us and watch over us talk to us. In other words, it's like the word of God is a personal friend because he uses personal human language here. He says it's involved in your life. It takes an active role in protecting you. So when you love the word and you please me and you yield to my spirit, I'll guide you, I'll watch over you, and I'll talk to you. And when you're struggling, I'll tell you what you need to know. Now, if that's true for me, and that's true for you, imagine what will happen if we're all committed to it together. Imagine what the Lord can do in our midst if you and I and all of us together say, this is going to be the commitment of our hearts. We are going to only do what is pleasing to the Lord, and we are absolutely not going to get pulled into the enemy's attempt to divide us. See, I believe that's why the Spirit gave us this challenge this morning as we celebrate our first Sunday in this building. Because as a body, if we fight against these seven things that do so much damage, and we boldly and aggressively consecrate ourselves to observing supporting, and attaching God's truth to our lives, God will work in magnificent ways. The strength of this body and the strength of our ministry completely depends on this. The strength of this body and the strength of our ministry completely Let's commit ourselves to it. Let's close our eyes. I just want to challenge you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or come forward or do anything. This is between you and the Lord. The Lord knows my own heart. But I would encourage you this morning if this has been a word you need to hear and you feel convicted and you feel a strong need to be cleansed of this because between you and the Lord, a couple of these things have been in your life. I want to strongly exhort you as your friend and as your pastor and as a person that struggles with this myself that you and I go before the Lord right now and confess that to him and ask us to cleanse us. Ask him to deliver us from these things that grieve his heart. To remove them so they would have no influence in our lives. These things will damage us. They'll damage our relationships. They'll damage our marriages and our families. And they'll damage our church. So we need to guard against them. We need to keep each other accountable for them. The Lord will cleanse us of them if our heart is sincere about confessing it to him. Then I want to encourage you second this morning to commit yourself anew. We're coming into summer. It's easy to relax. We're in a building finally. It's easy to relax. We're weary in well-doing. It's easy to relax. But we need to commit ourselves anew. To live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. To have a ministry that is pleasing to the Lord in every way. Because there are plenty of people around us that are dying and going to hell. And they need our witness and our example and our love for the Lord exuding from our lives. But that can't happen if we're allowing sin. So I encourage you and I encourage myself this morning. Commit yourself and it to the Lord. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. We praise you again and again for your goodness to us and how you have led us. Lord, this is a hard word this morning and it is a word that every one of us needs to hear. And I pray that we would not be discouraged or disheartened, that we would now instead be challenged and strengthened by the power of your might to put on the full armor of God and to guard our hearts against these things that grieve you so badly. Lord, may they not exist in our lives and may they not exist in this church. We ask you to cleanse. We ask you to convict. and We ask you to strengthen us, not for our glory, Lord, but for your glory so we can do the work of ministry effectively without distraction. Lord, keep the enemy far from us, and when he does attack, protect us and help us, we pray. That you would be praised, that your name would be declared in this city and this region, that people would know your greatness and your goodness and your mercy. Father, we thank you for what you're going to do. Continue to work in our lives this week and throughout the days ahead, we pray in Jesus' name.